And once you say, I can't be happy without that, I've got to find a way to have it or I won't be happy, then that has now not only threatened to become a God, but it has become a God. We've all heard the expression that you can't see the forest or the trees. And what that expression means to us is that we can sometimes become so focused on the details, on the minute details of something that we miss the larger point of that something. And so that teaches us sometimes that it's, that it's good to just step back and take a larger view just to get the grand scale of things and the bigger picture of things. And so as we've been working our way through this section in Philippians, we've been in a very tedious, rather compact section that Paul is speaking to us. And this section is filled with complex ideas. And so we have been doing just that. We've been looking very closely at the details of some of the things that Paul has been saying. We've looked closely at the details of what he has to say about fear, what he has to say about faith. We've looked at this statement that he makes that to live is Christ, to die is gain. We've looked at living worthy, living your life in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. We've talked about being citizens of the kingdom of God. And all those things we've looked at in close detail. And so now as we finish up the chapter, we're going to step, step back and we're going to take a little bit of a broader view of what he has to say to us. But as we do that, we're reminded that this, of course, is the word of God. And so I'm reminded of, of pictures of nature. You know, sometimes when we look at pictures of nature, we can see pictures that are taken really, really close in fine detail of maybe a bloom of some wildflower or a really close picture of a leaf. And those are beautiful. But then when we see a picture of the whole forest, that also is beautiful as just, just as well. And so the same thing is true with the Word of God. It is beautiful when we look at it in detail, and it is also beautiful when we step back to see the big picture. Now we're going to encounter in our passage, as we finish the chapter 1, we're going to encounter what I believe is the most startling and the most surprising, and in a sense, the most difficult thing that Paul has to say in the letter for us to sort of grapple with and get our arms around. So as we look at this rather shocking, startling statement, we're going to do it in the context of looking at the larger context of what he says in the last half of chapter 1. So let's uh, all together, let's start from verse 18, and we're going to take this big chunk of verse 18 down through verse 30 to look at this morning. So starting halfway through verse 18, Paul says this, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now is Christ, now always Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, 
with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your anointing on this time. We pray, Lord, that you would supernaturally come and speak directly into our hearts in a way that no human words can. And you would communicate to us on a level that is far above and transcendent of human understanding. You would communicate to us your unceasing love for us and the many manifestations that that takes. And I pray, Lord, that we would be moved as we hear your word and we leave this place, that we would be moved to love you and adore you and be faithful to you in new ways, ways that challenge us in our life, ways that are a sign to those around us that you truly are the most worthy and the most valuable thing in our life and that we do live for Christ. And so we make our prayer in the name of Jesus who died for us. In his name we pray. Amen. So just to kind of get a little bit of a running start, let's begin from verse 18. And we'll kind of summarize these the larger ideas as we go. And all that's going to bring us up to this most startling, surprising of statements. And you probably caught on to what it is. It is where Paul says that it is the gift of God that you would suffer. That suffering for the sake of Christ is a gift that God gives to his children. That's a surprising, almost a difficult thing to sort of get our minds around. But let's get a running start at it. In verse 18, Paul has just finished telling the Philippians about these other Roman Christians in the Roman church here in Rome and how they are moved in the, their boldness to be more bold to preach about Jesus, seeing Paul in prison and how God is sustaining him there in prison. But then others are preaching Christ out of false motives or uh, fallen motives or unholy motives. Their motives are jealousy. They want to harm Paul in some way by preaching the Christ. Maybe maybe they want to uh, get Paul into more trouble as he's there in prison. Or maybe they want to show the Roman Christians there that we don't really need Paul. Look, he's in prison and the church is moving along just fine. Maybe they've got something against Paul in that way. But in any case, Paul is thrilled about the fact that Christ is being preached, whether I, and uh, whether it's from false motives or from pure motives, whatever it may be, Paul is thrilled that Jesus Christ is being proclaimed. And the reason he is thrilled is because he says to live is Christ. My life is centered upon Christ. The purpose of my life is to exalt Christ. My life finds its joy and its happiness and its fulfillment only in Christ. And so therefore, Jesus Christ is the only thing for Paul that he cannot live without, and still be happy. Everything else in Paul's life, he can sacrifice, he can give up anything else and still find happiness because he lives for Christ. And because he lives for Christ, then therefore for him to die is gain because death would then usher him into the very presence of the one whom he lives completely and solely for. So he's thrilled that Jesus is being preached, whether by my life or by my death, he says, Jesus is proclaimed and that makes me Really happy. Then he goes on from there to, of course, now give this statement for me to me to live as Christ and to die as gain. That's the theme of the letter and that's the purpose of our life. To, to live our life with such conviction, the conviction that Jesus Christ 
is the sole thing in your life that is needed for joy and happiness. Not to say that Jesus is the only good thing in your life, but that is to say that Jesus is the only thing whom you cannot live without and still find joy and happiness. But with Jesus, you can conceivably lose everything else and still find joy and happiness because to live is Christ. And when that is true, then it is also true that to die is gain. And so now having said this, Paul has this little short section where he's sort of speaking tongue-in-cheek, a little bit of a jovial interchange that Paul has with the Philippian believers. And the jovial interchange, the joking, so to speak, that he has with the Philippians centers around this idea that, that first of all, Paul can choose whether it's time for him to die and go be with Jesus or continue to stay here laboring and working for the kingdom of God. Of course, Paul knows that that choice is not his. But then the joke of the matter is that, that Paul would actually say, oh, between the two, I'll choose to stay here and continue to suffer and because this is for your good, right? So you see sort of the, the lightheartedness in that. Of course, Paul would choose to be with Christ. But even in this, his joking sort of manner, his lighthearted, tongue-in-cheek sort of manner, the point still comes through that Jesus Christ is supreme in Paul's heart. And now we come down to verse 27. In verse 27, here we have this statement where Paul says, live as a citizen of the kingdom of God in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Philippians are it's very important to them, this idea of citizenship, because they're Roman citizens. And so he plays up upon that and he says, live as citizens of the kingdom, which you truly are citizens of. In chapter 3, he's going to say, our citizenship is in heaven. Live that way. A citizen of the kingdom of heaven lives in a way, Paul says, that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that we are worthy. That doesn't mean that we live in such a way that we now make ourselves worthy of Jesus dying for us. Instead, the worthy one is Jesus. The worthy one is the gospel. Live your life in such a way that shows everyone around you the infinite worth of the gospel. Remember the spider web? You walk through the spider web and somebody sees you from a distance and, and they can't quite understand how you're acting until they know what it is that you just walked through, this spider web, right? So in a similar way, we live our life in such a way that shows the infinite worth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so people see us make decisions, make choices, make sacrifices, etc., etc., that show that to us, the gospel of Jesus Christ is of infinite worth. Now, the reason the gospel of Christ is of infinite worth is because the gospel is what gets us Jesus. The gospel is the news of what Jesus did so that we may know him. So Jesus is of infinite worth. Knowing him is of infinite worth. And the gospel, which reconciles us to Christ, restores us back to relationship with Christ, that is of infinite worth to us because Jesus is of infinite worth. Live your life in such a way that those who know you may see that that is the most worthy and the most valuable thing in your life. And then from that, he says, uh, he speaks of their unity. Then verse 28, he speaks of them not being frightened by their opponents and how this is a sign to them. It's a sign to the Philippians of their true and genuine salvation. The fact that they're not frightened by the threats and the steps taken against them by the secular Philippians in their culture there, they're not frightened by that. That's a sign to them of their true and genuine salvation because 
they see Christ as infinite worth. The worth of Christ, the worth of the gospel, surpasses the, the worth of comfort and safety. And so therefore, they are not frightened by the threats and by the aggressive actions that are taken against them by the Philippians around them. But it's also a sign to the Philippians and the sign to them, they think, they misunderstand the sign, the sign that they think is that this is going to mean your destruction. As long as you hold fast to this gospel, as long as you continue to insist that Jesus is greater than than Caesar, then sooner or later that's going to be your undoing. They think, they misunderstand the sign. But this is a sign, Paul says, and the sign is from God. And the sign is that you are not fearful of your opponents. Now, in order for them to not be fearful, two things are needed. First of all, they need the faith to not be afraid. And secondly, they need something to be afraid of. They need a real true danger, right? It's not a real sign that they are of genuine salvation when they say, well, we're not afraid of our opponents. And somebody says, well, what are your opponents threatening to do? Oh, well, nothing. They, they leave us alone, but we're not afraid of it. That's not a sign. It's only a sign if there's a real true danger that in the face of that danger, they are not afraid. And so Paul says that this sign is from God, and we take that to mean that not only is the faith to believe and not be afraid from God, but also the danger itself is from God. God has brought about this situation in which they are in danger, but they're not afraid, and that serves as a sign to them and to everyone around. And then moving on from verse 28, down to verse 29, we touched on this last time. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him. So here Paul is saying to them that faith is a gift from God. We talked last time in detail about faith and how the Bible clearly says to us two things. First of all, that faith is a gift. It is the work of God. We cannot on our own believe upon Jesus Christ. God does that work in our heart. But at the same time, the Scriptures are clear to us to say faith is a responsibility. You are responsible to hear the gospel and believe it. If you hear the gospel and don't believe it, it's not God's fault. If you hear the gospel and don't believe it, it's your fault because you are responsible to hear it and believe it. And so we put the two of those together and they seem to contradict one another. And we talk about the nature of miracles and how all miracles are an apparent contradiction. And the miracle of salvation is no different because to us, in our world that follows our rules of logic, this seems to contradict the rules of the world that God created, as all miracles do. And so we cannot understand it, but by faith we accept what God clearly says to us, that faith is both a gift and faith is a responsibility. And that brings us up to this, again, startling statement that Paul's going to say, two things are a gift from God. Remember, that word has been granted to you. That word is the word for grace. It has been graciously given to you. It has been graced to you. Two things. First of all, to believe, and then to suffer. Now notice where the emphasis is. Both of them are a gift from God, but the emphasis of the, the flow of the sentence is upon the second. It's been given to you by God to believe, but also... And in a sense, even more importantly, Paul says, to suffer. And so here we come upon one of the statements of Paul that we're going to have to wrestle with just a little bit this morning in order to come to grips with what Paul means to say that suffering is a gift 
that God gives to His people. Because the two of those things don't normally fit into the same sentence for us, do they? Suffering is something that we want to avoid at all costs. It's unpleasant. Nobody likes it. Nobody says that, you know, I just haven't suffered enough this week. Hopefully I'll suffer a little bit this afternoon to make up for it. Nobody says that. Because suffering is unpleasant. It's unwanted. It's painful. It's distressing. We want to suffer as little as possible. But then we're faced with this idea of a gift. And we're not putting words into Paul's mouth. That's the word he uses. It is the grace of God that you suffer. It is the loving gift of God that you suffer. And a gift is something that we said last week is not earned. It's not deserved. We don't work for a gift and receive it in uh, as a wage. That's not a gift. A gift is given, but also it is wanted. We don't think of something that's unwanted as a gift. Nobody thinks of getting a gift of a punch in the nose. Nobody thinks of getting a gift as uh, an audit from the IRS. That's not a gift. A gift is something that is pleasant to receive, helpful to receive, and at least in some way, desired. So how is it that we put these two ideas together, and how is it that Paul can say this without even pausing to explain, oh, here's what I mean by that. Don't be confused by what I meant by suffering, gift. Let me explain that. Paul doesn't do that. He just gives it to him and keeps going. So, I think that our struggle with this begins with our understanding of suffering or our definition of suffering. So if you were to open a dictionary and look up the word suffering, and uh, you'll probably find a definition that goes something like this. The Oxford uh, Dictionary puts it this way, the state of undergoing pain, distress, or hardship. That sounds pretty basic, pretty straightforward, right? The state of undergoing pain, distress, or hardship. Sounds like suffering to me, right? But in that definition, which is a pretty good working definition for how most of us use that word every day, if you use that word every day, when we use that word, we use it based on a definition close to that. What's missing from that definition are two things that are really helpful for us to insert. What's missing, first of all, is an eternal perspective. Right there in the definition, the state of being in pain or distress. Right? That doesn't speak of something in the future. That speaks of right now. That speaks only of what's happening right now. It's the state or the condition right now of having this distressful, painful situation. So it speaks nothing of any kind of eternal perspective. Now, God has an eternal perspective. I'm here to tell you. God lives in eternity, and everything he says, he says with an eternal perspective. He never says anything to us based only on a present Perspective. Everything he says to us has the long view, has the eternal perspective. Furthermore, Paul himself had an eternal perspective. Remember when we talked about how uniquely qualified Paul was to say these things to us? Because he, among all men, was the one who was taken to see the next life. He was stoned in Acts chapter 14 and died and actually was taken to visit the next life and then come back. And so... He, among all men, is uniquely qualified to say something to us that has an eternal perspective because he's seen it. 
And so we've got to insert into our understanding of suffering an eternal perspective. And the second thing that's missing is a purpose. There's no purpose in that definition. The state of being in pain or distress, or what was the other thing, um, or hardship. Right? There's no purpose to any of that. Pain, suffering, distress, there's no purpose there. It's just a condition. And so missing from that is a purpose. And so just like an eternal perspective, what God says to us also has a purpose. God never says anything to us that's purposeless. What he says to us has an, has an eternal perspective and it has a purpose. So if you will follow along with me, I've put together what I think is a more helpful biblical understanding of the idea of suffering. And I've got it in your notes here. Suffering defined biblically, I think, goes something more like this. The taking away of temporary sources of earthly happiness or enjoyment in order or for the purpose of teaching or strengthening a desire for and an experiencing of eternal joy. That's kind of a mouthful, so let's let's go through it again. The taking away... Suffering, I think, biblically defined can be the taking away of temporary sources of earthly happiness and enjoyment for the purpose of teaching or strengthening or emphasizing a desire to experience eternal joy. And I think if we work with that as a good working definition of God's idea of suffering, Paul's idea of suffering, the biblical idea of suffering, I think that this will become much more manageable for us. So let's think about this. When we talk about the taking away of temporary earthly sources of pleasure, enjoyment, happiness, joy, what are we talking about? There's all kinds of things that we can be talking about. Friends. Is the taking away of friends and friendship, can that be thought of as suffering? Are they sources of Joy and happiness, temporary though it may be. What about the taking away of loved ones? They are certainly sources of happiness, and they are temporary here on earth like we are. And so that can be thought of as suffering, the taking away of a a temporary source of happiness. What about respect? What about when you're slandered and lied about and you lose respect? Is that a type of suffering? That that form of enjoyment, that source of temporary enjoyment as you enjoy the respect of others and that's taken away, I think we can think of that as suffering. What about uh, comfort? Comfort in the sense of, let's say, as a result of, of a downturn in the economy or a loss of a job or something, you and your family have to move out of your three-bedroom, two-bathroom house into a two-bedroom, one-bathroom house. And with that comes a loss of some comfort. That comfort was a source of happiness for you, a temporary source of happiness. And so the taking away of that source of happiness can be thought of as suffering. Or what about uh, free time? What if you lose some free time? What if you have to lose some free time on a weekly basis or a daily basis? Most people call that a job. Right? What if you lose that? That's suffering, right? And so we lose a source of happiness. It's taken away. We can think of that as suffering. What about things? 
possessions, a car or a boat or some new new fangled toy that we bought or some uh, property or, or vacation. What if you lose your, you know, you've been saving money for your yearly vacation and you lose that and now you can't have that vacation. And those things are taken away. Can that be thought of as suffering, a taking away of this temporary source of happiness? Now, all those things that we mentioned, we can mention dozens more. All those things, are they good or bad? They're really neither. They're really neither. They could be good, they could be bad, right? But here's the whole point is, all of them threaten to become gods. All of those things threaten to become a god or an idol. How does something become a god or an idol to us? Paul says to live as Christ. And what that means is Christ is his only source of happiness. If he loses Christ, he cannot be joyful. And so all of these things can threaten that to become a god themselves or an idol themselves in the same sense as we begin to think, I don't think I can be happy without that. I think I need that so much for my happiness that if it's threatened or if I lose it, I really don't think I can be happy without it. That's how something, an earthly source of pleasure, becomes a god or an idol, whichever word you want to use. It becomes an idol in our life when we assign it the same status as God. God, here's a definition you can use for a god. God is whatever you think you can't be happy without. If you think there's no way you can possibly find joy without X, then X is your God. Because you have to have it for happiness and joy. And so as soon as one of those things takes that place in your heart, and once you say, I can't be happy without that, I've got to find a way to have it or I won't be happy, then that has now not only threatened to become a God, but it has become a God. Something that we need for happiness, which stands in opposition to verse 21, where Paul says, to live as Christ. He is the only thing that is needed for happiness. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Truth That Transforms with pastor and Bible teacher Jason Wilkerson. Truth That Transforms is the daily teaching broadcast of Disciples Fellowship Church. We invite you to visit our website, where you will find more resources to help in your journey of discipleship. You can find us at www.disciplesfellowshipnc.com or connect with our Facebook page at Facebook slash Disciples Fellowship NC. Truth That Transforms exists to glorify Jesus Christ through the teaching of His sanctifying and disciple-making Word.